Take your Bibles out this morning, if you would please, and turn with me back to the book of Acts as we jump back in this morning, our series on the book of Acts that we, we were in for quite a while. We're up to the 27th message. If you would find chapter 23, please, chapter 23, the Lord is a shield and defense to his children. Aren't you grateful for that? Let's stand and read about it. Stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Let's back up to verse 30, uh, beginning uh, just right before uh, chapter 23. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason, while he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him. Now, that would be the the, uh, tribunal who was Claudius Lysias. He unbound Paul and and brought him down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you. Now, that may be prophetic because in 66 A.D., uh, some zealots, thinking Ananias was too pro-Roman, assassinated him. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then with a great clamor uh, that arose, some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priest and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we're ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. 
Paul called, called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in the ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they've killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Father, we are so encouraged to read in the scripture about your plan for your servants. And how you bring your plan to pass. Lord, oftentimes our plans fizzle and fall by the wayside. But encourage us that when we are about your agenda, through your spirit and through your power, you bring it to pass. And as Jesus said at the end of the Great Commission, he said, and lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. Lord, thank you that you don't just send us you go with us. You are our shield and defender, and for that we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This past week, you may have read the Pew Research study that's gotten a lot of mileage in the press. 35,000 interviews were done in all 50 states. And the results are very discouraging on one level and rather neutral and meaningless on another level. 
You see, the interviews had to do with the status of Christianity in America and specifically church attendance. The article stated that Christianity is in a free fall in America. For every one person joining the church, four are walking away. Now, obviously, that's a trend that simply can't continue. Since 2007, there's been a pretty consistent drop in church attendance nationwide with no signs of that changing in the near future. Now, by the way, among Roman Catholics and Southern Baptists, it seems that those two groups fare the best, pretty well holding steady. Well, on the one hand, the article is sounding the alarm for Christianity and for churches and church leaders. How are churches going to address this and adapt to all of these changes? On the other hand, if you read other church growth consultants like Ed Stetzer, he comments that before everybody gets their handkerchiefs out to mourn the death of the church in America, you need to look more deeply at the study to see who it is that is leaving Christianity. As Stetzer points out, and by the way, he is considered one of the best in the nation at what he does. As he points out, those who are leaving are who you would only expect to be leaving. It's the nominal Christian, the person who attends only occasionally, identifies himself or herself as being a believer, and yet there is no identifiable fruit whatsoever in their lives that they've ever been changed. He goes on to say that among those who are truly converted, whose lives have been changed by the gospel, there's no drop in attendance for them. Well, anyway, as you look at the study, whether you're in that group crying, the sky is falling, or you're others like Stetzer who are saying, hold on, all is not lost, nonetheless, we do have to acknowledge that we're not doing a very good job in the church of reaching the lost in America. Especially when it comes to the younger generations. Now, folks, for these reasons, I want us to turn our attention again, uh, once again today, to the book of Acts. We see in the book of Acts that it is God's plan to reach the nations with the good news about Jesus Christ. The gospel isn't to stay locked up in our churches away from the public. It is God's intent that you and I take the good news of Jesus Christ out onto the streets of America. God wants to reach the nation. And God's plan is to do it through people just like you and people just like me. Now in Acts, we see Christianity spreading from Jerusalem to Rome. We see it spreading from Jews to Gentiles. We see what God was able to do through Twelve men, remember Judas has been replaced, twelve men plus the 108 others. So 120 in the upper room there in chapter 1. We see what God was able to do through those 120 people to literally shake their culture. Folks, we also need to understand that the Greco-Roman culture that the gospel penetrated was absolutely pagan for the most part. 
at least we today aren't starting at ground zero the way they were. They weren't even a part of a, of a legal, recognized, official religion. That wouldn't come until the Edict of Milan in 313. And so all of their battles were uphill battles against a culture that knew nothing about Christ. We need to keep that in mind today. God can help us to reach this culture because God has done things like that before. Amen? God's helped his people to reach their culture. Now, I want to remind you of some of the larger themes we've seen so far in the book of Acts. Beginning in chapter 13, the focus shifted away from the church at Jerusalem and shifted to the church at Antioch. And at that time also, the focus shifted away from Simon Peter to the Apostle Paul. The focus likewise shifted from going to the Jew first to now the gospel is being taken to the Gentile. We've seen Paul go on three missionary journeys and he comes back to the church at Antioch and he gives sort of an update or a status report of what God has done through him and his missionary team. Now, beginning with chapter 23 today, we see God bringing about what he told Ananias about Paul all the way back in chapter 9. You remember what happened back in chapter 9? The apostle Paul was dramatically converted on the road to Damascus. And immediately God told Ananias to go and speak to Paul. And Ananias was scared to do so. He said, Lord, I've heard about this man and what he's doing to Christians. And God said, Ananias, be of good courage and go anyway because he is an instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings. Now think of that last phrase, and kings. Beginning in chapter 23, Paul's witness from here on out to the end of the book of Acts will be before kings. Paul is no longer a free man. He is a prisoner for Christ's sake. Now, as we'll see today, when the Roman leaders arrested Paul, they were really being used by God to protect Paul, as they themselves end up concluding they had no basis in Roman law to keep him arrested, and yet they kept him arrested anyway. Why did they do that? Well, God was using them. To protect the apostle. Paul is going to be given the chance to take the gospel all the way to Rome. And he's going to be able on the streets of Rome to preach Jesus. And folks, he's going to be going at the expense of the state and under the protection of the state. God's good, isn't he? God's working all things together for good. Now, when we last left Paul, we saw that he had made it to Jerusalem. The Ephesian elders and others were, were concerned about him going back there because everywhere Paul had been warned by the Holy Spirit that if he went back to Jerusalem, persecutions and chains awaited him. And yet at the same time, Paul concluded that it was God's will for him to go anyway. 
Because it was through those events that he would eventually indeed end up in Rome. Now why was Rome? Why was it so important to go to Rome? Because Rome was the capital city of the Roman Empire. The most powerful city back then. Through Paul's arrest and trip to Rome, he was going to be able to preach Jesus in a city like that among some of the most important and influential men and women in the entire world. Surely God was in all of this. And so Paul felt a sense of compulsion to go to Jerusalem. He arrived there in chapter 21 and once there the mobs were stirred up against him and and falsely accused him of defiling the temple. There was such a disturbance that the tribune, the Roman leader who was Claudius uh, Lysias had to have Paul arrested and, and, and drug out of the place just to rescue him from the crowd. You remember what happened then? Paul asked for a moment to address the crowd and he was given that opportunity. And Paul gave a powerful testimony about being converted, being raised a devout Jew and then how Christ had appeared to him on the road to Damascus and saved him and commissioned him to go and preach the gospel. And the crowd listened intently until Paul got to that place in his defense that he said, God has sent me now to the Gentiles. And when they, when they heard that word Gentiles, they went nuts. They went crazy. And so the tribune had to save him from that mob and, and put him in chains. He was going to have him beaten. But then Paul said, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. It was illegal to beat or even put in chains a Roman citizen without just cause. So now the tribune is afraid. And so he unbinds him and presents him before the religious leaders in Jerusalem the next day to try to figure out why there's such anger against Paul. Now that brings us up to our verses for today. Claudius Lysias has called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, a council made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees who were the chief Jewish rulers and authorities The tribune wants this matter settled once and for all. He doesn't understand what is going on here. Why are they so opposed to the apostle? Now folks, what I want us to see this morning is God's protection over his servants. You and I can have every assurance in the world when we, are, when we are about God's agenda, God will be looking over us. Now that doesn't mean God's going to save us from hardship. God may allow some hardship for our witness to go out to others in the midst of that. But one thing is for sure, as long as God is using you and me to accomplish his purpose, he is able to watch over us until he gets done with us with what we have for him to do. You and I need to rest assured of that. It's like Isaiah the prophet said in the book of Isaiah, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. You and I can have the assurance as we go out as a witness for Christ in our culture today that God is going to be with us. 
I want you to see how it develops in the text. First of all, I want you to jot down, as a, as a servant of God, you need a clear conscience. You need a clear conscience. Look at what Paul says down through verse 5. Notice how Paul begins here. Oftentimes in Paul's writings, he's able to give a statement of a clear conscience. Now, you may wonder how in the world Paul could say such a thing like this, especially given the fact that he had acted with such hostility and anger at one time towards Christians before he was one himself. After all, Paul had been there at the stoning of Stephen and had gotten official papers from the high priest to be able to go all the way up to Damascus, arrest Christians, haul them back to Jerusalem, put them on trial, put some of them to death. So how in the world can Paul say right here in these verses that his conscience is clear? Well, folks, it goes back to his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Remember what he said there about being the chief of all sinners and how God had forgiven him because everything he had done, he, he had done in ignorance. He thought he was actually defending God's honor and God's name. When he was passionate himself in, in his days of Judaism. Everything he was doing, even then, though he was wrong, he was still doing with a clear conscience before God. And he says when God woke him up and converted him, God forgave him of all of that. Paul knew that he had been forgiven of his unbelief and of his sin. And since becoming a Christian... There was only one passion that had driven his life, and that was obedience to Jesus Christ. Paul had such a dedication and determination about his life and about his Christian service that he was able to say here, I have a clear conscience. Makes me think about his testimony at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Remember what he said to Timothy there? When he said, Timothy, my life now is being poured out. I'm like a drink offering, like a sacrifice that's being poured out. My life is over. And he was passing that baton on to Timothy. And he said, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I finished my course. He had a clear conscience. Folks, it's a wonderful thing to have a clear conscience. I think of when Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I've not withheld anything from you that you needed to hear. I have proclaimed to you the whole entire counsel of God. I've told you about the need of faith in Jesus Christ and the need of repentance in your life. I've told you everything that God would want me to tell you. I am clear. I am free of the blood of all men. Clear conscience. I wonder this morning, would you and I be able to look ourselves in the mirror and before God, with God as our witness, know that we have a clear conscience? You know, the world looks at all this stuff so upside down, doesn't it? 
Oh, you come to Christ and it's going to be bondage. No, it's not. It's going to be freedom to know that you're forgiven and, and you stand before God and you have peace with God and you've been reconciled to God and all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. That feels good, doesn't it? To have that kind of peace with God. That's not bondage, that's freedom. And I want to ask you today, do you have that kind of freedom of having a clear conscience before God and of knowing that your life is at peace with Him? Or maybe there's sin and disobedience that you know you'll have to give an account for. Why not deal with whatever it is in your life that might be keeping you from having a clear conscience? I want you to notice something else about Paul's life here. When Paul said what he did, you'll notice the high priest gave the charge to have Paul hit in the mouth. And Paul, Paul's only human. He loses his cool a little bit and he fires back. He says, you whitewashed wall. Now stay with me a moment because you're going to see something about his, his character and his conscience. You remember how Jesus, when he confronted the hypocrites, the religious leaders back there in the Gospels, he called the Pharisees and the Sadducees whitewashed tombs who were full of dead men's bones. Now, you may not understand that metaphor. It was their practice in Jewish life to whitewash a wall where there were tombs that were chiseled out and carved into the rock. It was a way of letting everybody know that behind the wall there were were dead bones and decaying bodies. The outside of the tomb, the outside area might look sanitized and might look really nice, but inside there was death and decay. And if the people came into contact with that death and decay, they would become defiled themselves. And so whitewashing was a way to set the tombs apart. Well, Jesus looked at the religious leaders on one occasion and he called them whitewashed tombs. They were full of dead men's bones. He said, you know what? You'll travel land and sea to to go into distant lands and make one disciple. And when you make one disciple, you make him twice the son of the devil that you are yourselves. Paul says the same type of thing to the, to the high priest. Only thing is, we're told he doesn't know it's the high priest. You say, how can that be? After all, wasn't Paul himself at one time a leading Pharisee? Well, the commentators point out a number of things. First of all, they had hauled him into what was probably a very dimly lit room at the fortress of Antonio. The lighting was poor and it's, it's generally agreed that Paul's eyesight was poor. Some believe that was the thorn in the flesh that Paul later wrote of. He had poor eyesight. So he's in a dark room. His eyesight's bad. It's very possible that the high priest didn't come to this quickly called meeting with all of his priestly garments on. And remember, folks, Paul has been out of these circles for 20 years doing missionary work. The high priest has changed and Paul didn't run in these circles anymore. Plus, as some point out, maybe the high priest called out what he did from the midst of the crowd. Paul didn't see who it was that spoke up. He just heard a voice, didn't realize it was the high priest. 
I like what I.H. Marshall, uh, going along with Calvin and Augustine and others, also sees another point being made, that the comment of the high priest was so out of order and out of character for a religious authority that Marshall thinks there's sarcasm in Paul's comment. Paul is saying, I didn't realize, based on your comment, I didn't realize a high priest would have said something like that. Be like if you read the headlines this morning after the race last night. What if you read the headlines that there was a fist fight down there and it was Ronnie Floyd, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, who was in that fist fight. Would that surprise you? Or would it surprise you if you read that it was me, your pastor, in a fist fight? You'd say, yeah, that would surprise me. I wouldn't expect that of somebody who's a religious leader. So maybe Paul's using sarcasm. Number of credible reasons why he doesn't, why 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 he didn't know he was insulting the high priest. But the important thing to see here, though, is the respect that Paul had once learning that it was the high priest. He apologizes in so many words for insulting him, recognizing that it's God who's put certain authorities in place. And the high priest is one of those. Folks, what a testimony Paul is to many people today in this regard. We live in a day where people love to rebel against the powers and authorities that exist. We need to understand what the book of Romans says about even the authority of secular government. Secular governments, even when they're not Christian, are nonetheless powers that God has put in place to bring order to society and punish evildoers. And therefore, the New Testament admonishes us to respect the authorities that God has established. In fact, Christians are to be good citizens. We're to be model citizens. In a society like ours today where civility has gone out the window and there's no no manners anymore. We need to remember this. Folks, Christians don't need to be involved in chaotic, unruly stuff. Even if things are done that you disagree with, there's a Christian way to address grievances. What a shame today that some who identify themselves as Christians allow themselves to get caught up in mob violence and chaos. God's not a God of chaos and confusion. Let me say that in particular to young people today. It's becoming an in vogue thing to be a part of mob activities. It's disturbing to see what we're becoming as a people. God's not in that. There are ways to address things. In both the Old and the New Testaments you see God's people respecting even governments that they don't agree with. God doesn't call us to do Christian things in unchristian ways. You know who I think of in the Bible? I think of Esther in the Old Testament. And how she related to that pagan government that she was in. 
And she was called to be God's light in that. I think of Daniel and how Daniel operated himself. How he handled his life in the midst of that pagan Babylonian government. And Daniel stayed in that government for 70 years trying to be a witness. So again, I think what we're witnessing here in the Apostle Paul goes back to his clear conscience. Even when he's wrong, even when he's lashed out, he admits it. He changes his whole tone and demeanor. He's a man of character. We see the fruit of the Spirit coming out of him. He's a man with a clear conscience. Again, is your conscience before God this morning the way you have lived your life, the way you have conducted your Christian walk, the way you have been an example to others? Would you and I be able to look ourselves in the mirror before God and know that before God we've got a clear conscience? Second thing I want you to see, as a servant of God, you need bold convictions. You need bold convictions. Look, beginning there at verse 6. You've got to love what Paul does next. He shifts the focus off of himself. He knows that the Pharisees believe in the resurrection and angels and the supernatural. And he also knows that the Sadducees do not. Well, in the Old Testament, God had given promises of the Messiah that the, the, the Messiah that he would send to his people one day. Of all people, the religious leaders should, should have known what the Old Testament said about these matters. This was the group that should have known about the promised Messiah. All of the scriptures that would talk about his suffering and his death, but also his resurrection. And so Paul uses this occasion to toss that out there. He believes in the hope of the resurrection and the resurrection of the dead. He shouldn't be on trial for something so embedded in the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, again, he's standing before the very group that ought to know this. They ought to have the same convictions. That ought to be something they all affirm. What he's saying here shouldn't even really be a matter of debate or consideration. They just wanted to shut Paul down. They just wanted to shut debate down. It's not like a lot of people in our culture today. They just want to shut all Christian debate down. They don't even want to hear your voice or my voice. There are people out there in society that don't even want to hear what you and I have to say. But again, look at what Paul's doing. Whether they believe in Jesus or not, they ought to at least believe that the Old Testament spoke of the Messiah. They ought to know that. Well, with this, Paul starts a fight. But now they're directing the fight not at Paul, but at one another. That The two groups square off against one another. You've got you to love his strategy here. All of a sudden, the Pharisees are defending him. Well, what if, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him and revealed all of this to him? And so with that, the two groups start going at it. But folks, I want to ask you today, what are some of your non-negotiable convictions? Do you have any? I hope you do. 
Are you willing to stand up and be counted on those convictions about Jesus Christ? Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you and I ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? He wasn't afraid to speak up and proclaim the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would say to you and me today, we need to stand up and we need to speak out. Folks, Christians today in this culture are acting like we need to be in some kind of retreat mode. We don't need to be in a retreat mode. These are days, dark days in the culture are days that you and I need to speak up and be salt and light and tell people what we believe. It's easy to state our convictions in church where everybody we would assume agrees with us. But how about out there? How about in the workplace tomorrow when you go among people who may not be believed? Are you willing to proclaim the gospel in a place like that if you're the only one? You and I need to be willing to do that. Don't run away from Christian doctrine. Folks, we need to know what we believe. This, this is an area where we might have missed something by, by taking all the creeds and confessions out of our worship. Now, folks, we're Baptists. We have no creed but the Bible. But I wonder if our people haven't been cheated in worship by not reciting some of the creeds and confessions of the past. Because it used to be a way in worship just every week we would, we would recite in a succinct form what we believe. I wonder if we've not missed something today by not doing that. Our people need to know what they believe. And we need to carry those convictions out into the streets. There's no shame in believing what you and I believe. There's no shame in it whatsoever. Our, our culture tries to get you and me to backtrack on what we believe. And I want to appeal to you this morning. Don't do it. Stand up for what you believe. Stand up for it. You've got just as much right in this culture to believe the Scripture as somebody out there who says they don't believe the Scripture. Amen? And if you believe in the inspiration of Scripture that God has left us with the reliable and trustworthy revelation of His activity, then you also have every right, just like somebody else does, to try to persuade others of what you believe. Not only to state what you believe, but to try to give a defense and persuade others of what you believe. Be a person of conviction. Don't run from the gospel. Don't run away from it. Thirdly, as a servant of God, you can be comforted by by God's sovereign control of your life circumstances. Beginning there at verse 11. What a wonderful verse. The following night, verse 11 says, The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. 
Folks, this section begins with a wonderful promise of God that, that surely had to have meant the world to the Apostle Paul. Here he's been arrested, nearly beaten until he spoke up that he was a Roman citizen. And finally he's faced off with the Pharisees and Sadducees in this tumultuous meeting. I'm sure if there were ever moments in Paul's life that if Paul wondered what was going to happen to him next, a moment like this had to be such a, such a time. And in a moment like that, what did God say? Don't worry. I'm with you. I'm with you. Verse 12 tells us that more than 40 zealots made a vow. They made a pact that they wouldn't eat. Until they'd killed Paul. Now you might say, well, I wonder if they, I wonder if they kept that vow. Actually, in their defense, not, not defending their vow, of course, but in their defense, there were ethical ways. By, if you'd made a vow and circumstances had changed to where there was no way you could have carried out that vow. They had some outs in their culture at the time. I'm sure they used those outs when they, when they couldn't keep the vow. But anyway, they go to the chief priest, they go to the elders, they tell them their plans. They want them to get Claudius Lysias to call for Paul to come back because they're promising the, the, the tribune, we're, we're going to finally make this decision that you're calling on us to make. That would have motivated the tribune to, to try to call him back. But it was all a trick. It was all a scheme. They were going to lay in wait and ambush Paul as they brought him back in and, and kill him. Religious leaders, and yet they've got murder in their hearts. Now for the first time, you've got to love this too, folks. For the first time in Scripture, we learn that the Apostle Paul had a sister and had a nephew. And this nephew, this young man has somehow or another heard about this ambush. Now, now, folks, don't tell me that God is not sovereign over all the affairs of life. All of a sudden, here's a seemingly insignificant character that appears on the, on the pages of Scripture. It's all we ever read about him. And yet, at the right moment, he appears on the pages uh, 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 of Scripture and, and he learns of this plot and he makes this plot known. I, I want to ask you this morning, do you ever look at the circumstances of your life and think to yourself, you know, if only my circumstances had been a little bit different in life, maybe my life would have been better and I could have accomplished more. Don't ever think that. Folks, we see in the Bible that God is also the God of our circumstances. He's the master of our circumstances. Whatever you might be going through, for some reason, God has permitted that. And no doubt, he's got a purpose in it. Classic case of God working in circumstances to bring about good would be who? Would be Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. His dad just sort of happened to make him a coat that he didn't make his other brothers. Just happened to, right? His brothers just happened to be jealous of him. His dad just happened to send Joseph one day to spy on his brothers and bring a report back to him. They just happened to see him coming. 
And they happened to concoct a plan to get rid of him. Band of Midianites just happened to be passing by at the right time. And they sold him into their hands. And they just happened to sell him into slavery down in Egypt. Not just to anybody, but to no less than Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Mrs. Potiphar just happened to lust after him. And when he rejected her advances, she cried out sexual advancement and, and, and or harassment and had him thrown in prison. And it just happened that it wasn't any prison, but it was the prison where they held political captives. And he just happened to be in prison with men who had served in Pharaoh's court. And he just happened to be able to interpret their dreams. And Pharaoh just happened to have had a dream on one occasion that nobody could interpret. And the very man who had been in prison with Joseph was able to tell about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. Joseph was able to interpret the dream and it was elevated second in the land. And God had revealed to Joseph about the famine in the land and how to save everybody from it. Joseph's brothers just happened to come to Egypt to buy grain and stand before Joseph. And through that encounter, Jacob and the sons of Israel moved to Egypt, rose in power, were enslaved. Then were delivered and led into their own land where God gave them the law and God gave the prophets. And finally through them, God sent the Savior of the world. All of these things just happened, right? I don't think so. God's the master of circumstances. Don't ever act like you're just some victim of your circumstances. This scheme against Paul was made known. The tribune assembled 470 men, about half of the fighting force they had in the area. 470 men who took Paul to Caesarea uh, Maritime up on the, on the coast above Jerusalem, about 60 miles away. The 9 p.m. one night, they started this journey. They kept him safe. And there in Caesarea, he testified before Felix and then before Festus and finally before King Agrippa II. And then finally, he was shipped off to Rome. Again, remember what Paul, Paul had been told, what God had told Ananias about Paul back in chapter 9. What's Paul going to do? Who's Paul going to testify before? Kings. It started. It's now started. God's doing that. As a free man, Paul would have never had this opportunity. But now as a prisoner for the Lord who has appealed to Rome, Paul is testifying before kings. Folks, this isn't coincidence. This is God at work. I have no earthly idea this morning what some of you might be going through in your lives. Some of you may be going through very dark valleys and circumstances. I cannot tell you necessarily what God is doing there. But I can tell you God is there and he's working. 
You may not understand, you may not even understand it on this side at all. It may be in heaven that's revealed to you why. Or it may be you have to get to the other side of those circumstances and look back in hindsight to understand what the will of God was. But I can promise you, I can promise you on the authority of the word of God, he's the God who's the master of circumstances. Do you trust him in that? Do I trust him? Do we trust him to do what he's promised us he would do? And do we trust him enough that you and I in our lives, even when we don't understand, we keep looking up to him, we stay on our knees, and we keep marching forward, serving him and bringing him glory? Is that how we live our lives? He's the God of circumstances. I want to ask you this morning if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes with me a moment. Again, what's going on in your life? Do you trust God? Do you trust Him that He's got a plan? Again, I didn't say you'd understand it right now, but do you trust Him? Rather than letting circumstances make you give up, Instead, ask God how he might want to use those circumstances to further his plan and to point others to Jesus. You see, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about God. Do you have firm convictions based on the Scripture? Are you willing to speak up? Are you willing to speak up with those convictions? God uses those who will take a stand on his word. Do you have a clear conscience? Father, we thank you that you indeed are the shield and defense of your children. And there's somebody here this morning that needs to understand that. I don't know who, but God, you know who. Speak to their hearts. Lord, for the one who's not your child, they can't claim these promises because they're outside of your fold, but maybe you've been speaking to them, drawing them to Christ. Lord, I pray today they would come to Christ and believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.